and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. As you listen to this, I am out in the woods hunting, or I should be, hopefully, fingers crossed, and next week is Thanksgiving. So if that is a holiday you celebrate, our team hopes you have a lovely holiday and cheers to everyone having some time to rest, reflect, and recharge. This is one of the best times of year for that. We have another fun fellows-driven podcast episode today, folks. Senior fellows Naselo Berry and Saba Usmani discuss what's in a name. They talk about the meaning and impacts of their unique names and how words and naming impact the environmental justice conversations and movement. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the Age of Change Collaborative Podcast uh, series here. My name is Nasela Berry, joined by Saba Usmani. Um, and today we're going to talk about kind of how we came together for this podcast, some of the things that we're going to talk about, um, and just really delve and just have a, a like a great, great conversation around naming, what that means environmental justice, and kind of the impacts that it means for us personally throughout our journeys today. Um, so Saba, welcome. How are you today? How are you? I'm doing well. I can't complain. Um, here in Portland, I know people probably hear this later, earlier or later, excuse me. But right now, it's pretty chill. Not too bad. Not too hot or anything like that. Uh, where are you coming in from? I'm in New York City, in on the west side of the city, um, just close to Columbia University, where I am a student. Uh, one thing that we really thought about when we're coming together for this idea is that through the Agents of Change earlier, we met in Philadelphia for a retreat. Mm-hmm. And as we were just talking, we we're putting groups of, amongst the, the leadership group uh, team from AOC. Um, and we just started really just just having a conversation about, you know, introducing ourselves, where we're from. And one thing that really stuck out to both of us are our names and, and what they mean and kind of where they come from. Um, and so one thing I want to kind of start off this podcast, Saba, is talking a little bit about your name and, and why that's important, because that'll drive us into the conversation of unique terming terminology and environmental justice and why giving names to certain things give things this certain identity and a certain realism to the problem in order to address it fully head on. Um, I think too much yes. of kind of the space that we talk about now is like the abstract makes problems harder to solve, but defining things as, as a unique problem, like defining a person as a unique individual provides just a, a lot more, a, a solid manifestation of the thing that you're looking at and, and who you're talking about. And so starting from there, Saba, tell me uh, or tell us about, you know, how your name came to be and, and the the impact of it and, and what that means for you today in the space of EJ. Sure. Um, so maybe I can start with kind of defining the meaning of my name and what it, what it means. So it's, it's an Arabic origin name and it's very co- common Muslim name for girls across the world, including in South Asia, where I'm from. So it means morning which is really ironic because I am definitely a night owl. And most recently, um, this is some somewhat related to kind of my personal experience, um, but relevant to my name. But I Googled myself kind of a few years ago, as we always do once in a while. And uh, let's be honest. And (laughs) (laughs) I came across a kind of a tragic incident that kind of shook me to the core. I discovered the news of a young woman 
named um, Sabah Osmani, who was brutally murdered uh, with her five children in oh, wow. um, Essex, UK. And um, it was the only person in um, on Facebook that kind of shared the same name as mine. So I kind of felt this connection um, because learning about this horrific kind of hate crime was a kind of a reminder for me of the prejudice and violence faced by individuals simply because of their name and identity and, you know, the Islamophobia that's pretty prevalent um, yeah. across the world. Sure. But, you know, on a on a positive note, you know, sometimes, you know, my name is also something that kind of connects me to many people around the world. So, you know, I, um, you know, get, you know, meet meet folks with Muslim names across the U.S. and and in um, India. And, you know, it, it's automatically there's there's a connection of kind of a global community. You know, I, I'll take like a cab ride and, you know. Uh, the Uber driver would be like, will instantly recognize that my name is Arabic and they may be from Africa, they may be from South and a different country. And, you know, there is that kind of sense of a, of a global community that's, that's pretty prevalent. Um, you know, um, and means a lot for me, uh, to, to have that identity and makes me feel like this sense of broader community here in the U.S. as well. Um, but also my name has been kind of a reason for kind of many experiences of microaggression and discrimination also that I faced mm. in South, South Asia, particularly in India. So there's, you know, all these stereotypes and prejudices that exist in every society. And, you know, India is not an exception. Right. So, you know, um, often like in school, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, like a classmate asked me to, you know, not sing a patriotic song because I was Muslim or, you know, in the 2010s, I was living in Mumbai and I found it kind of extremely challenging to rent an apartment. Yeah. And I was often rejected, not because of the way I looked, but because of my name, uh, which was the only kind of identifying feature of my kind of cultural background. So it's kind of, you know, um kind of a big topic kind of you know it's it's been a big part of how kind of exper I experience the world and um, you know I'd love to kind of also learn more about your name what it means and kind of your experience around that yeah thank you Saba for sharing that really really interesting insight into kind of how your name came to be and, and the impacts that it provides you um, personally as well uh, for me uh, my name was picked up my mother when she was serving in the military in the 90s um, similarly Arabic as well, but also a Somali background. Um, and so one thing that is really unique about, interesting about my name is that uh, my mother wanted all ends because her her family, her siblings are all M's. So Michael Mitchell and Michelle, my mother. Um, and so she wanted to do the next uh, space up in the, in the alphabet. So N, so my name is Nisalo, N-S-I-L-O. Um, and, and that means fortunate prince. And my brother's name is Nezariah and that's God's jewel. So she picked those two names as as kind of having these one you mentioned kind of having this uh this cultural community and i think for me it happens in in a actually different i think i would say opposite way like i've never met another nasalo during you know living in the us for most of my life right um i went to africa to do some work which i spoke about in a previous podcast with agents change um but even there didn't meet too many i didn't meet any nasalos there uh similar like you i did google my name and so if it's not me coming up, it might be, you know, some some official in Africa, usually. So I did I have seen the name being used before. Obviously, don't know if it's said the same. But um, for me personally, having that name where, you know, you're only going to meet the Nesalo, this one Nesalo in your life. It's incredibly you would think that I would have a a big ego 
in Saba, I might maybe just a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but really, I always tell people like, you know, I can't be a criminal because, you know, my name is too is too unique that I'm going to be found out whatever I do. Like, I don't have like a John Doe or, you know, Bill or Robert name. You know what I mean? So, no, but um, jokes aside for me, it was always about just my mother wanted to enforce the this the notion that people are unique individuals and we are right. And your name should be kind of a an indication of that and, and how that spreads to you. So so for me, it's it's the space where um, where, you know, who am I as Nasalo, but also with kind of the the surname of of my last name, Barry, which represents the family, as you mentioned. And, and that's where my connection is. You mentioned kind of connection for you. That's where my connection is for that. But also the freedom to go out and define who Nasalo is as a person in the world um, is something that um I've taken kind of the 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 mantle and the wishes from my mother and my brother with his name too about defining who I am and what I'm going to be in the space around me while representing, you know, the Barry family, so to speak, too. So um and I've always in and, and you deal with it, right? You deal with the mispronunciations and and those things and how people would, you know, don't get it or mispronounce your name or call you something else or or do those, you know, microaggressions like you need a easier name. It's like my name's only five letters, yo. Like it's not. It's not that hard if you just listen to me. I promise you, I'm not trying to tell you how to say it wrong, right? And so, um, mm-hmm. and so, it's always kind of this. Uh, but you, for me, it it all comes with the the name, and it's something I would never give away for an easier name and just um, some just less kind of um, less daily friction. You know what I mean between you know conversation and things like that. So, and even in, in the topic, so you talk about discrimination, like always thinking about like. One thing I do think about is, is, you know, job applications and putting your name on certain things. And one thing I've, I've come to, to accept is like, if I can't put my name on something as who I am, as Nasalo, then this job is probably not for me, you know, even if I really want it. Right. Because, you know, I'm leading with a, a false perception of who I am and I'm really, I'm fully Nasalo and I have, and that's something I always, you know, live with and, and define of who I am as a person. Um, and that being said, yeah. like I said, it, it provides this manifestation of of when you think of Nacelle, you think of a, a, a person and what that person represents. And I carry that with me wherever I go and whatever job that I'm doing and the friendships and relationships that I build together. So um, for me, that's kind of where that stems from. And, and I think about that when we talk about environmental justice. Right. And, and about words and about things people are afraid to say or afraid to talk about. And that kind of leads me into kind of our, our first really our first interesting talking point. Um, and so when we're talking about one thing we had in our conversation, Saba, in Philadelphia during our retreat, um, we spoke about kind of environmental justice and and not really in that term, not really being like in popular term in India for you. Um, did it go by something else during your time growing up? Did you learn that, oh, this is what it was, but nobody really said that? How did the term EJ kind of come into your your vision, so to speak, when talking about environmental issues uh, in, in India? Yeah. I mean, just just to kind of go back on your point on on names, you know, I'm excited about the next generation of O's that yeah, are going to yeah, sh- <laughs> that are going to show up. And exactly. um, uh, yeah, and and in terms of environmental justice, I think growing up in India and Nepal during the 90s and early 2000s um, and the, the 10s, um, kind of I learned about all these different kind of social environmental justice movements. But like the term environmental justice was not like a prominent part of uh, the mainstream discourse at the time. 
So I didn't know the term until I moved to the U.S. and learned about uh, Dr. Robert Bullard's work in college. Um, and it's not just, you know, I learned that it's not just kind of about understanding, you know, the experience of how marginalized folks are disproportionately affected by environmental issues, but it's, you know, and especially people of color and low-income communities, but it's also actually about like inclusivity and including these communities and solving the problem. Um, you know, I think it's something that's changing in the global south, including in India. Um, there is a term in Hindi, Paryavaran uh, Nyai, and it's not commonly used. And kind of many of these movements historically aim to address the disproportionate impact of environmental degradation, especially they were related to kind of protesting large uh, development projects that had impacts like dams uh, on kind of marginalized communities. Um, while advocating for more um, equitable alternatives. Mm -hmm. So there was a movement called the Chipko movement, and Chipko means uh, clinging to in Hindi. Um, but it's a well-known movement in the 1970s in the northern state of uh, Uttarakhand. And it was a grassroots response to de like deforestation that was happening and commercial logging, uh, and it was led primarily by women. And uh, there was another important movement against a uh, dam called Narmada Bachao movement in the 80s, uh, which was focused on opposing the construction of kind of large dam, dam pro projects and uh, the rights of tribal communities and farmers affected by the d dam construction. And now there's, you know, I work on urban issues. So there's also like a lot of issues in urban areas that got um, related to kind of informal settlements in India and other uh, lower mid middle income countries. Um, which, you know, these settlements often disproportionately located in unsafe and polluted environments. But the term, you know, in my own work, the mm -hmm. term in justice is not used in, in our discussion with communities. It's not mm -hmm. commonly. Um, but these are clearly like, um, you know, these are environmental justice efforts, but the language of environment justice and use of this term is not prevalent, uh, especially right. at the time of these earlier movements. And even though some of these movements were not successful, they kind of helped really bring these ideas forward mm. uh, about how we need to safeguard the environment and the rights of marginalized communities um, today. So, yeah, to be frank, like India still kind of lacks like a coherent ethical, you know, environmental justice kind of lens framework that... Mm -hmm consistently safeguards environmental and social justice. But these terms are in a sort of a clear understanding of, mm -hmm. of these these kind of uh, terms, both environment and climate justice are important for these efforts, I think, in low and middle income countries. But also they're really important for kind of these global negotiations that are happening. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, in, in these multilateral conferences like the COP um, to, you know, correct the environmental injustices we see at the, at the global scale. scale. Yeah. So, yeah, I think like, you know, a shared language and understanding of these kind of environment justice, climate justice and environmental racism uh, often kind of used interchangeably is kind of critical for, you know, both advocacy at the local also and global level. Um, and for me, you know, personally, it has kind of helped me contextualize my own experience and research focus mm -hmm. in South Asia with this feeling of like a broader global environmental justice effort. So it's like... Right. What I'm doing here in India is related to what what is happening here in Ecuador or what is happening yeah. here in uh, New York yeah. City in, in the Bronx. So I think these connections I wouldn't be able to make if I didn't have these terms. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's really helpful for me to make these connections across my different work. But I, 
you know, I think it's really important that we don't use jargon that leaves folks out of the discussion. You know? Sure. Because yeah, like, I always, I personally, I always want to prioritize understanding and inclusion over the use of some jargon term. So like if we're talking to, you know, folks and they're not understanding, you know, I don't know, like intergenerational equity, like we can, yeah, yeah. there are ways to explain that. And I think, you know, stories are a great way to kind of explain this because, sure. you know, when it comes to terms like intergenerational equity, I think it's a story about that would convey this complex meaning of this term better than using the term. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, um, yeah, just this storytelling is a great tool we have kind of for highlighting these terms and explaining them in a way that is accessible. And I think that's the most important thing, not the use of the term. And that's a great and point. So, yeah. Um, Saba, that you bring up, like you mentioned that, and I'm a firm believer that people connect with people. So you mentioned storytelling and, and being that a uh, uh, powerful mode of getting a point across. And I 100% agree with you. Like the, the, the quantitative work is important to having the data and stuff that back up what people are saying is also important because so many times in these areas, the global South, low wealth countries, people might say something or even low wealth communities in the United States might say something is going on. Right. But mm -hmm. people say, well, the data is not showing that. And then months later you find out that, you know, people get diagnosed with something or somebody it happens in healthcare all the time, particularly amongst, you know, unfortunately black women, Hey, I'm going through this pain and the, the implicit biases that are in, you know, in our healthcare systems, um, you see will show up and you'll see the fact that, you know, black women died at, at a higher rate when it comes to pregnancy births. Right. And it's really those type of things and having the combination between, you know, power of storytelling, but also the data to back those things up too, and listening and conveying points across helps build those bridges that you can then use, as you mentioned, be translational across different places, different countries, you know, who will, you know, come from different cultures, speak different languages, but have this shared understanding of what we're talking about, what we're going through. And for me, growing up in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, like um, the environment was nothing. It was kind of, uh, I guess, the biggest thing that we spoke about when it came to environment was recycling, right? And so Earth Day and recycling, but Really, I came up in the the era. I don't know if you remember this, uh, Saba, uh, box tops. So, like, if you get, like, food and cereal, they had, like, this box top you can cut off um, at the top and, you know, put into a, a bag. And then you send them to your school. And, you, and your school would have, like, classroom competitions or maybe inter interregional competitions, whatever the case may be. Um, but for me, there was a disconnect between cutting off these box tops, recycling them, and what that actually meant for protecting the environment. Um, and so, for me, environmental justice was always this this term where um, I knew the importance of taking care of the environment. I was in uh, Boy Scouts where that's a big part of kind of our teachings that we, we learn about um, and just internally within the household about respecting the space around you and, and, and respecting plant life and respecting animals and those type of things. But um, I never thought about, about, you know, determined environmental justice. And this is somebody who lived near an airport, Lambert airport in St. Louis for the majority of his childhood. Right. And so, Think about also like that that lives near that um, mosquito sprayers coming up and down the driveway. This is back when um, West Nile virus was a big thing. So we used to have these big trucks of that would come and spray chemical plants throughout the year. I think usually in the summer, but we'd be outside playing and then you just see a truck come up with that just chemical spraying out the back and just thinking nothing of it. Like, let's yeah. let's go back to playing tag, you know. Um, and so so for me, EJ was like similarly like you, even though it was a fight that was going on and on the fence line. Um, 
a lot of it was just internal teachings, uh, not too much externally, not too much formally until really I started thinking about, you know, until I got into like high school and, and college where I started thinking about um, the impact of chemical plants and, and, and how they live near um, families and the impact that means for not just the family health, but financially as well. Like a lot of these places, um, the, the, the chemical plant that's near them is the only billion dollar production facility and houses there are marketed below value. So people can't like just move, you know, you would think like, Hey, people can do that, but it's really, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of really how I I came into the the term of EJ, but like yourself as well, like a lot of it was just hearing stories about people living near areas and seeing things. And you can see certain how you might see a chemical facility and see the places around it, but you would, I'd never connected them really as environmental justice until formally being educated on things, you know, early, uh, later on, as they say. Um, Yeah, it's really kind of interesting to hear about your kind of lived experience of environmental justice, right? And we see in the field as a whole, it it seems to always kind of produce these new new terms and new new concepts. So I wonder if if sometimes all these different terms kind of fog our understanding of the issues of environmental justice that you know you you just described of like people on the ground and kind of even prevents us kind of pro- properly addressing the problem. Um, so I'd kind of love to get your perspective on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. Uh, for me, one thing I, you mentioned jargon, Saba, earlier, and that's one thing that I I don't like when we talk about, when we start getting to like uh, these conversations is using jargon in, in the space of of kind of like academia or using kind of a, your professional experience, so to speak, as a way to kind of throw up impediments against, you know, people who are living the the lived experience. Um, and so for me, um, I think, like you said, keeping it simple for all parties involved and, and leaning on the, the prospects of storytelling is pretty critically important. Um, I do think having too many terms and, and, and not really defining what they are and just throwing them out casually, like, um, another one's like intersectionality, right? Like that's such a, that's a broad term mm-hmm. that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people in a lot of different scenarios it can be something where it's, it's really, it becomes tough. And if you can't move past the jargon, then you don't get to what's important. And if you don't get to what's important, then you're not looking not to change anything. And so for me, having simple and straightforward terms, and then sure, you know, as you become, become more familiar with the community and more with familiar with the people who you're talking to, people can, you can bring people up to speed on certain things. Right. So it doesn't have to be something where, you know, at the moment, like, you know, when you're learning how to, you know, walk for the first time uh, and doing those things, like they say, walk before you can run. Like you don't just start sprinting. Like there's a there's a process to doing these things. And and that's OK to do that. And, and if some people are crawling, then some people are crawling and whatever the case may be, some people can sprint and some people can sprint and, and so on and so forth. So it's whatever, whatever suits kind of your speed and your mode. I think people like us who are in the space and trying to make a difference and, and being the, the you know the scientists and researchers we should be open to all those individuals and be accepting of them and bringing them all in because all of them bring value as people who are in the experience, living experience, but also looking to make a difference in a solution to better their communities or communities they come from, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's for me, that's really important. We're talking about, you know, trying to stay away from uh, jargoning terms and, and making them so complicated where people stay focused on that term and we can't move past that in order to look at the actual problem. 
um, that we talk about. And so something like that is 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 we talk about the word in kind of in the current form, uh, woke, right? And and what that means and and how it's being perverted today to mean other things than what it originally meant as it's kind of this place of of realization about certain things around you and systems and how to overcome these systems. But now it's being perverted as as this kind of uh, moralistic agenda being used to to brainwash people into into doing um, absurd things like just understanding you know impacts of 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 systematic racism and 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 now challenging that saying that that doesn't even exist anymore so things like that become become flipped on their head where we lose sight of like actually trying to make a difference in our communities because we're stuck on a word and that's being used as a a a a a uh, what's it called a platform kind of driver for political candidates to particularly on the right particularly to to derail conversations that are extremely impactful in in our societies. So um I remember you had some you had some interesting kind of concepts about woke and, and about what kind of the the state of being versus attaining it and what that means and the difference between that too. So um, Yeah, uh, we were talking earlier about uh kind of the difference between woke as a state versus sure. woke as an active effort, like mm-hmm. staying woke in a way, you know, with active engagement and reading and learning and speaking to people and continuing to stay engaged instead of having this dichotomy of like, these are people who are woke and these are people who are not woke. And I think that's not very helpful. And I think as the active state of staying woke was something that I find, you know, that could be inspiring, um, you know, as, as you know, continuing to make that effort to stay engaged and, you know, look outside your own experience, um, you know, or privileged positions. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I, I, I find that uh, could be a useful framing. Yeah, and that's a that's a really great point too, because like with anything else, um, for me, like when it comes to exercising, like, you know, you get to the place, maybe you get to your goal weight or whatever the case may be, but the key is then you have to keep doing those things. Now you may not necessarily have to exercise as hard to get to that that point because you've overcome so much other things, obstacles before. So now it's just like maintaining now, if that makes sense. But Mm-hmm. You still staying woke is a, is a constant exercise. Exa- exa- sure. no, exactly right. Exactly right. But mm-hmm. if, so if I decide to not go to the gym for the next three years, I'm going to be back in the same position that I was trying to get out of, you know, when I was, you know, going to the gym. So, and like you said, it, it's a constant exercise. And, and, and like many of these type of things, a lot of these things are constant with that. Like we're dealing with systematic problems. So they need systematic solutions. And, and that really means just honestly sticking with something for a continued time, continued effort, and with continued resources in order to see the result that you're looking for. And then, you know, that's going to become your new normal. Uh, but for us, um, getting stuck in, in, in the politics and the minutia of, of the term, I believe completely derails us from, you know, the solution that we're looking at. Right. And so, and so that's something that for me, struggling with and wrestling with things like that, but also with like the term, for example, people of color, something I think about often too. Right. And because not too long ago, you know, colored people was a was a, a problematic term in the United States specifically. Um, we're talking about black individuals. So and so now just kind of flipping that and saying people of color. Um, and so for me, the question that, you know, I think about is, do I want to really make this a, a, a situation where I get stuck on the term and we can't move past the solutions that people are trying to bring to the table for people of color, whether it's involving environmental justice issues. We can talk about homelessness. We can talk about mass incarceration, whatever we want to talk about. Um, I think that's something that, you know, you have to learn to mature and grow past. Right. And that's that can be a separate conversation, you know, some other time in a sidebar and resolve to the, the issues. But 
if I'm making it about why are we still why are we still say people of color, then we don't get to the the environmental justice, the fence line communities. We don't get to those people in those issues because I'm so set on trying to define exactly what this means and and really define it for my own comfortability. And I was interested to see if is there anything that you feel is kind of like any term that you come across or you think about uh, or that you wrestle with personally, Saba, when it comes to kind of something similarly as well as I just mentioned. Being a person of color who grew up in a country where almost everyone was a person of color, I think when I first moved to the U.S., yeah, yeah. it was also something that I was grappling with. I'm like, oh, do do they do they just mean non-white? So, yeah. so I think like, um, you know, I I was also kind of thinking through those terms and what what feels authentic or useful to me um, in different contexts. But um, you know, there are. Often these terms that, you know, you may have even noticed in our conversation today, I often use terms like global south, low and middle income countries, um, or uh, a number of different kind of terms, um, you know, developing countries pretty interchangeably. And, you know, I think it's important to kind of know the differences between these terms and, you know, often like global south, a lot of countries in the global south are actually in the northern hemisphere. So it's, you know, it's a mislabel, including India is in the northern northern hemisphere. And like LMICs, like people aren't familiar with that term. So when you use that, like you need to be, you know, it's not commonly understood outside like the development health community and developing countries. Like, what do you mean by developing? Are Why are some countries developed? It still has like kind of that colonizer, colonized relationship or, sure. it, you know, so things like that. I think it's, you know, it's important to kind of think about what terms you're using and be really specific about it. And understand these differences, even if you're choosing to use this. So I think that's something I I, I still grapple with. What is the appropriate term? Um, but yeah, uh, uh, as as a concluding, I think it was you know it's really great to kind of chat with you and kind of problematize and think through all these different um, ideas around naming our names, uh, the kind of how we define environmental justice and our experience of these different terms and how that's impacted our, our own work, but also uh, the, the, uh, the, the field as a whole. Um, yeah, could we learn a little bit more about your socials and where listeners can find you? Yeah, thank you so much for that, Saba. Yeah, the conversation was great. Had a great time doing this with you. Uh, we were in the group I mentioned in the retreat. So uh, shout out also Marissa, and Carolyn, uh, Marissa Chan and Carolyn Ramirez, part of our cohort. They're part of our group too. So um, I know that that was a really fun group that we had a chance to do that. And we also did some work with uh, kind of our community science del- deliverable too, as well. But anyway, for uh, the socials, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Nasalo Berry. Uh, send a message, want to connect, send a DM. I'm always happy to chat with some people. I know some people have connected with me through Ages of Change already. So I'm really excited about that. Um, also have uh, the narrative essay out. Um, around kind of social housing and, and public housing and looking at some of the ways that we can improve that. Uh, that's on EHN and also the Age of Change website too as well. And also the podcast um, I did with uh, Brian as well. Um, that's also on Spotify and all your other um, DSPs, digital uh, streaming platforms. We just talk about terms, right? So um, you can go find that there as well too. So I'm excited to kind of hear how this one comes out um, and, and Saba interested in kind of hearing about uh, where people can find you and the things that you have going on. Um, so my research kind of focuses on uh, built environment and environmental justice and environmental health um, in the U.S. and as well as in um, India. And I'm you can find me at uh, LinkedIn at Sabah Osmani as well as in Twitter on Sabah Osmani.
Thanks okay. so much. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good one. That is all for this week, folks. This makes me want to go out and learn more about my name. Now, I learned a lot on this podcast episode. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, visit our homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button, click around, see what the fellows are up to, read their essays, listen to their podcasts, and see what our team is up to as well. You can also find Agents of Change on X, Instagram, all the socials, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. This episode was written and recorded by Nisselo Berry and Sabah Usmani, produced and edited by me with outreach, scheduling and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizota, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singlet, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Pottington Bear. You want to know a great way to stay up to date with us? Sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. My friend and colleague, Maria Paula Rubiano, who I mentioned earlier, puts that together and she does a fantastic job. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks.